Let me pray for our time together. Father, what a joy it is to celebrate baptism with Ben. What a joy it is to see uh, just clear evidence that you are a God who, who brings a new life. You are a God who redeems. You are a God who saves us from our brokenness and sin and, and saves us to new life with you. Father, as we look at these words of Jesus, I pray that you would allow us to hear them, hear them as his words, the words of our King and Savior. I pray that you would open our hearts uh, to, the, to the, way of, the way Jesus calls us to live, to the way of grace. Only you can do this by the power of your spirit. In his name, amen. Well, I have a confession to make that I probably only floss about 10 or 12 times a year. So maybe that caused you to lose some respect for me. Uh, but I say that because I don't know how you are, but I know all the reasons to floss. It's not for a lack of information, you know. Only floss the ones you want to keep, right? Isn't that, isn't that the expression that your dentist tells you? But for whatever reason, when it look, comes down to the practice, I tend to only get to it maybe, maybe once a month. I need to turn this fan off. It's uh, blowing my Bible around. Just point it that way. Is that in your face? And what I'm getting at is, is this gap between information and action. There's this gap between information and action. And I think you see it in flossing where there's tons of, it, the thought of having no teeth is not a nice thought. It's a, it's a scary thought. Uh, yet for some reason it doesn't inspire me to, to action. And one of the, this is actually a sociological phenomenon that we see playing out in our culture. There's a, a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, where sociologist Neil Postman explains a phenomenon called low information to action ratio. That in our culture, in our day and age, we live in a time where there's low information, there's a low action in response to the information we have. We're, we're living in, in what? The information age now. Not the Stone Age or the Iron Age or any of those. We're in the information age. And what we've seen, that what sociolo sociologists have seen, is that there's a gap between all this incredible information. More, the average person today either knows or has access to infinitely more information than most humans in human history. And the reason for this, uh, Neil Postman ties it all the way back to the telegram, to the telegraph. Because prior to that, news, information was incredibly local. So if you lived in a town or a you know, cluster of farms, I don't know, and someone's barn was on fire, then you just heard from a person, Joe's barn is on fire. And you didn't log on and tweet, you know, stop barn fires, hashtag, you know, end barn fires, or you know, start blogging about the injustice of barn fires. You just grabbed your bucket and you went down to Joe's barn and try to, try to put out the fire. And if you didn't make it there in time, then you'd show up the next day and help Joe build his barn. So I, I'm not trying to say, like, it's better without the Internet or anything like that. I'm just saying, historically, when news was immediately local, then you could just act on it. It was relational, and you could engage. And now you can hear about all this stuff from very far away that's so far removed from our sphere of influence that we can't really do anything about it. And so this has kind of formed us as humans to hear about things, even emotionally respond to injustices, but not do anything other than tweet or post something on Instagram or put a filter on our Facebook profile or whatever. 
And I'm just saying this so that we can maybe a little bit understand where we are as humans in our day and age. This is kind of the air we breathe. I'm not saying we need to like repent of this or get rid of the internet or anything, but just to be aware of it because I believe this low information to action ratio has infiltrated the church. Maybe more than ever, Bibles are aplenty. We can listen to world-class Bible teachers and preachers through the internet. We have incredible resources for knowing information about what it means to be a Christian, what the Christian life is like. But we see here as Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount, we've been in it since February or January or something, we've been slowly going through the Sermon on the Mount, so that Jesus ends with with this terrifying warning. If you've grown up in the church, you know, you might have seen the, the felt board, the flannel graph story with like the man with the house in the sand and it falls off and, and then the rock and it, you know, the, the wind comes. And, and this is just not a cute story. I'm not saying flannel graphs are bad or we shouldn't teach it to our kids. I'm just saying Jesus ends what is probably the most holistic comprehensive, profound teaching that we have of his in one spot. Obviously, we have lots of it in, in scripture, but this, these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is maybe the most significant single teaching we have of Jesus to his disciples, to people who say, you are the Lord of my life and I want to follow you. And he doesn't end this sermon with a pep talk, with a cute story, in a prayer. He ends it with a terrifying warning. He gets done with all this stuff that he said, that we've been through, and he ends with a warning, and this is the main point for this morning. Jesus' big finish to this Sermon on the Mount is if we don't practice the way of Jesus, we will be destroyed. Again, this might seem too harsh if you, if you are used to the flannel graph Sunday school version, but that's what Jesus is saying. If we don't practice the information that he just gave us, the teaching that he just gave us, we will be destroyed. So we're going to look at practicing the way of Jesus today. Three points about practicing the way of Jesus and just kind of walk us through this text. So thankful for Jesus in general, but specifically as a teacher because he's just a master of the metaphor and analogy. Makes my job easy, and it's also incredibly vivid and understandable. The first point that we're going to look at in practicing the way of Jesus is that it isn't optional. Practicing the way of Jesus, if you want to be his follower, if you want to uh, receive the kingdom of God or have everlasting life, uh, if you want to flourish as a human... It isn't optional. Practicing the way of Jesus isn't optional. Let me read verse 24 again. Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So Jesus kicks off, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine. He's wrapping it up. He's just been preaching for three chapters. And he says, These words of mine. If we're, if we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, as a single teaching, we see a pretty clear outline, a pretty clear outline just by way of review, that Jesus begins with an introduction. If you want to follow along, it's on page 1501. 
He begins the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, the, the blessednesses, the blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. This is like his introduction, like his hook, if you will. He begins the Sermon on the Mount talking to his disciples, people who are already following him, and he says, let me tell you how to be happy. Let me tell you how to be blessed. And he paints this picture of how to be blessed. And then he gets to a thesis statement, which, which he says, you, my followers, are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. You're a city on a hill. That's his thesis statement. This is a picture of how we flourish as you follow me and the blessednesses. His thesis statement is that you will then be distinct from the world and you will bring the light of God into it. You'll be a city on a hill surrounded by darkness. And then after that thesis statement, then he, then, he then goes through 14 teachings that we've been through. I'm not going to rehash all of them, or actually any of them, because this passage is enough. But I just want us to see the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. He gives us 14 teachings that go all the way through uh, adultery, murder, uh, marriage and divorce, and justice, and prayer, and spiritual disciplines, and money. He hits on all the big topics, every, everything that would cause any of us grief. He t- hits on anxiety and self-awareness and uh, hits on prayer again. It must be kind of important. And then he ends with three, uh, three kind of uh, examples or di- dichotomies where he's talking about the wide gates and the narrow gates and then a tree and its fruit. And then these people that say, Lord, Lord, and he sends them away. He's like, we did all this stuff in your name, and he sends them away. And then finally, the two houses. The tree and its fruit, the wide gate. These, these two examples is Jesus kind of ending, ending the sermon in grace. We talked about the wide gate and the narrow gate are talking about the two ways of being in the world. There's a one based on grace where we trust in Jesus alone. And then there's the one where we, we reject God and seek to be in control of our own. Whether we reject God with religion, with church activity and doing stuff in our own strength, or we reject God with irreligion and just making up our own sense of right and wrong. Both of those things reject depending on God. And just like Lou brought in the sermon last week pretty ferociously, the people who did these incredible things in the name of Jesus are rejected. Jesus sends them away. Why? Because they were trusting what they did, not in Jesus. We see Jesus, even though he doesn't use the word grace in the Sermon on the Mount, he weaves this reality of grace, of dependence, of trusting in God more than anything else that we have in our lives or ourselves by beginning it with spiritual poverty. Blessed are you when you're poor in spirit, when you realize you have nothing to offer, that even your best efforts are filthy rags. So after placing it in grace, we get to our sermon text here where he says, do something. Isn't that kind of confusing? He's been talking about this beautiful way of life. He's been talking about how it's based in dependency, dependence on him and the Holy Spirit. And then he says, you have to put them into practice. So we're going to talk about this practice of Jesus today. It's not optional, and it's based in grace. A verse that I think makes this really clear is John 3, 36. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So that's pretty straightforward. How do we get eternal life? We trust in Jesus. We believe in him. But the next part is so, so interesting. This is Jesus talking. He says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life 
but the wrath of God remains on him. Do you see that tension? If you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. But if you don't obey Jesus, the wrath of God remains on you. Do you, do you see that? It's not necessarily a tension, but a, a full picture is that there's belief and there's obedience, and they're, they're inseparable. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. It's not enough just to agree with everything that Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount or to blog about it or read more books about it. We have to practice it. And really, what we see is this is not uh, Jesus saying, show me that you, you love me, uh, earn my love by b- performing. What he's doing is practicing his words will, in fact, bring us to the narrow gate, will, in fact, bring us to grace. There's no way to practice what Jesus says without having to really grab grace by the horns. Like, if we have a bank account of grace that's available to all of us, 10 billion grace bucks, Jesus is saying, you have to go to the bank. You have to get in your car and drive to the bank, and make a withdrawal of grace. That's that that practice. We don't earn grace. It's there. It's free. But we need to practice what Jesus is saying so that we can live in the way of grace. You could say this whole framework of practicing the way of Jesus is really practicing the way of grace. When Jesus says, the small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, this is, this is the road. Practicing this way of grace, it's narrow. It's very countercultural. It involves action, it involves effort, but ultimately it's all founded on this free grace that we get through the blood of Jesus. I want to spend a minute talking about the word practice here. Verse 24 says, puts them into practice. Hear these words and practice them. I think it's a really significant word. Think about how we use it even in our own culture. It's kind of strange when you think about it, because doctors have a what? They have a practice. You know, when people are cutting you open, you kind of hope they're done with the practice stage. But it's that idea that <laughs> it's that idea that they show up every day and they practice their training. They practice what they know. They they're putting it into action. Same with lawyers. Same with a genius musician. The uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book with a 10,000-hour rule where he looked at people who were just had that gift, the natural gift to whatever they were doing, whether it was music, he looked at Bill Gates with technology, and he said despite their giftings, they still, the thing that set them apart was 10,000 hours of practice. 10,000 hours of doing it, practicing. And you see Jesus model this idea of practice because he spent most of his time, most of his ministry, walking and talking and eating and doing things with 12 goofy guys that seem to always not get it. And this word practice, that's the, the Greek word that's translated here for practice is poieo. And it's this really broad, beautiful word in Greek that's used 22 times in the Sermon on the Mount, 10 of which are used in these last few verses, just in chapter 7. This word, it's translated a lot of different ways in, in uh, doing and giving and calling and making. But just all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is calling us to poieo, to, to participate in the way of grace. Because Jesus, we see, he's interested in transforming, not just informing. 
Jesus is looking at transforming all of our lives along the way of grace, along the way of Jesus, not just giving us right information. There will be no theology test at the gates of heaven. I love theology. I'm a huge nerd. But I've seen in my own life and the lives of lots of people I knew in seminary where there's a breakdown in the information not transforming us. What I'm saying is grace comes through practice. If you want to live in the sweetness of God's grace, it comes through rhythms of our life that set us up to receive it. That's what Jesus is saying here. Practice these words of mine. And just by way of example, this is something that I feel like I slam up against all the time. When Jesus says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? Because it's hard to look at the plank in your own eye. It's hard to be self-aware because we inevitably are going to see ugly stuff. We're going to see things that make us feel not good about ourselves. So if we press into learning more about ourselves, learning about our blind spots, that will require us to cling to the good news that in Christ we are okay. In Christ, God looks on us with delight, even as we see ugly parts of our hearts. So many of the things Jesus calls us to in the Sermon on the Mount require us to go to the bank and take a withdrawal of our grace account. And that's the whole point. That's, that's how we experience life with God. So practicing the way of, isn't a way of Jesus isn't optional because it's the way of grace, and that's the only way that we can know God, the only way we can enter the kingdom, the only way we can have the good life with God as our Father. The second point, practicing the way of Jesus is like building a house. We read uh, 24 and 27 again. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. This parable is just so rich. To begin, this idea of house, building your house, in this time, in this time frame, the house would have been pretty much unanimously symbolic for your whole life. Because here, our houses are a place where we watch Netflix and relax. But in this day and age, you had multiple generations living together. They were often the place of business in a highly rural, rural economy. People would have worked out of their homes or lived on the land that they worked. So your house is your whole life. It's your work. It's your rest. It's your family. And the other thing that we see in this parable is that all of us are building a house. Because right, right now, at least y'all look like it, we're all alive. I think we're, we're all alive here. And so if the house is our whole life, that means all of us are building a house. Every day we wake up and we build the house of our life one way or the other. It's just a matter of which foundation we're looking to. We're all building a house. We're building the house of our life. It's just a matter of what foundation we're looking to. Is it the way of Jesus and the way of grace? Or is it the way of the world where we seek to make ourselves okay? 
whether by doing, taking God's rules and rejecting God, or rejecting God and his rules and making up our own rules. The other thing that is just really significant about this parable, and it's actually true of most of the, the dichotomies in the Sermon on the Mount, is that there's two things, and they look the same except for what's underneath. So Jesus says, when you pray, and he talks about religious prayer and irreligious prayer. Both people are praying. It's not a question of whether or not you're praying or not. It's a matter of what's behind the prayer. Are you praying to a father that hears you, or are you trying to earn his attention with your many words? Both of these houses are the same. Above ground, they look completely identical. It's what, under, what is underneath that matters. It's what the foundation is. And Jesus says there's a wise man and a foolish man. Wisdom was a very high virtue, a very high value back in the day, back in Jesus' time. People kind of across the board saw that as something good and, and pursued it. I think maybe in our culture we see it as something good, but it's not really anything that we pursue. And one of the the key components of wisdom, maybe the key component, is a consideration and a submission. A consideration and a submission. Examining our lives and asking questions, being open to different ways of doing things, being open to things we've done wrong, learning from our mistakes, admitting our mistakes so that we can learn from them. And I spent one not-so-glorious week in the construction business uh, one summer a while ago. And I've told this, I've t I described this scenario before. Little did I know how helpful it would be in preaching. But they brought me onto this work site because they couldn't get a bobcat through the woods. <laughs> so I was just digging trenches and all kinds of grunt work. And uh, it was two older guys I was working with. And we were working on foundation stuff. And it was really hard work. It was very unfun work. Even after a week of hard work in the sun, it didn't look like we had really done much. But of course, we were going to build this huge rock chimney on top of the foundation. It had to be pretty sound. And so you see, in the foundation questions, it requires patience. It requires submitting to the reality. It had been way, much fun, way more fun to lay brick or see the building go up. But there's a submission to what is needed for a flourishing life. And a fool, by contrast, is a kind of a harsh word maybe in our, our context. But in this context, it simply meant a simpleton. It just meant it wasn't quite as derogatory as if we were to call each other fools here. It was just someone who didn't think, who just kind of blindly ran around trying stuff. We don't really know why he was foolish, why he didn't examine his life. Was it because he was too busy? Was it because there was some sin he didn't want to look at? Was it because he was self-righteous and thought he had it together or needed to have it together? Otherwise, he couldn't function. We see the connection to what Jesus said earlier in the chapter about self self-awareness there's all kinds of things that we can just 
imbibed by living in our culture. Just as fish in the sea, we don't really realize that we're wet. And there are things that we don't examine in our life. And it's simple. We just kind of assume it. We just take it for, for granted is what we're supposed to do. And if we ask the question, where is this coming from? Well, it's coming from the world. It's coming from car commercials. It's coming from Wall Street advisors, God help us. And just a couple things that I think could be part of the simpleton living of our day and age is upward mobility. It's just a unanimously unquestioned good in our culture generally. You see people uproot and move to move upward and make more money and advance in their career. Not that that's always bad, but I see a lot of families break themselves, set themselves up in a very tenuous situation to be upwardly mobile. Instead of asking the question, where did this value come from? Is this a value that we see modeled in the life of Christ? Proverbs gives us a really simple definition of wisdom. Wisdom is the fear of the Lord. You see the submission there. You see the examination, knowing God and submitting to him. Now, this is not a call to be wise and have a happy, healthy, wealthy life. Because we see in this passage that both the wise and the foolish got hit real hard with storms and floods. This, this would have really preached to Jesus' audience because in Israel, it was a very dry, arid climate, but they had these, these deep creeks or canyons called wadis that would, that would flood really dramatically, really suddenly. And just completely wash away entire towns and farms. So this, this wouldn't have been like a hypothetical like it is to a lot of us here in Michigan. But this is a really affirming thing that inevitably storms are going to come. Jesus never promised for us to, uh, that we would avoid storms. If you obey me or you love me, then you're not going to suffer. Instead, what he says, when your house is built in my way, in the way of grace, you'll have stability, you'll have a framework, you'll have strength to face that and survive. So as Jesus says, practice my way, he's saying, build your house on the way of grace so that when the storm comes, we're still sleeping at night like well-loved children because we, we trust in grace and not our ability to control it. Lastly, as we look at this passage Jesus talks about in verse uh, 27 as he looks at the foolish man's house. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against it, and it fell with a great crash. The word here for great crash is megalos, which is the word that we get for where we get mega from. Jesus, and this is why I'm saying this is like a really startling warning that Jesus is. The last words of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is, and he died in a mega crash. Let's pray. <laughs> like, no one would be in this church if that's how I ended every sermon, with, with a mega crash, with a promise of destruction. But that's how Jesus does. That's how dire it is. That's how serious it is. And the reason I don't end my sermons the way Jesus does is because of his authority, which is our last point. Practicing the way of Jesus 
is rooted in the cross. His authority is rooted in the cross, and his way is rooted in the cross. Look at verses 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, not, uh, and not as their teachers of the law. This was just a really sweet week of studying, studying these verses as a conclusion and reflecting back on the whole of the Sermon on the Mount because I've read these chapters many times before and they seem very sweet and nice and Jesus can say that stuff, but really they're some of the most subversive, uh, bold claims to deity that, that Jesus ever made. Because one of the really interesting things that Jesus uh, models in this passage is that he doesn't quote anybody else all of this is original content there are other places where he quotes the old testament and 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 those were serving purposes in those teachings but when it says they were they were amazed at his teaching because he had authority that's because he didn't sit down and have a bibliography and say this is what i've compiled kind of like what i do here like I, i don't really have any authority on my own i'm just trying to open the word of god with you guys but Jesus just sits, just sits down and opens his mouth, and it is the word of God. He doesn't need to appeal to any higher authority. He doesn't have to validate it by, see, also, we see this playing out in the research, and he just says what is true. All the claims that he's made in the Sermon on the Mount up to this point lack any appeal to something higher. And this is really some of the most audacious claims that he makes in terms of being the Messiah. Even the people who get rebuked in his parables, when he says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You would only say, Lord, Lord, to deity, to to God. And Jesus is like, yeah, people are going to say that to me. No big deal. And then in that same passage, it will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all this stuff in your name? You only do stuff in the name of deities. It's significant that Matthew, as he concludes with a mega crash, Jesus concludes with a mega crash, and then Matthew gives us this little editorial about the crowds being amazed at Jesus' authority. is because this is the way of Jesus. The way of grace is that we submit in humility to Jesus' authority. We see that Jesus' authority is distinct from how we probably typically think about authority, which is that it is modeled and rooted in the cross and sacrificial love. If there's an authority you want to submit to, it's an, author- an authoritative figure who is willing to die for you. Similarly, in Jesus' authority, it's rooted in the fact that he lived it out. It's rooted in the reality that he was living in the way of grace. He was living according to the kingdom of God. And that the way he was living led him to the cross. It led him to suffer it led him to be mistreated and rejected and ultimately in love to lay his 
life down. Why? Because of the, the sweetness of the, his relationship with God in the kingdom. So what do we do with this? What does it mean practically to model the way of Jesus, to live in the way of Jesus or the way of grace? There's lots of application we could look at. The Sermon on the Mount is immensely practical. And it's typically practical in ways that we, as church folks, like to brush over. We want to get to the, the little more cut and dry rather than like repenting to people that we've wronged against or fighting our anxiety. But as I thought about the, the way forward in practicing the way of Jesus, and especially this idea of authority, because I just really want to acknowledge that I have no authority, you know. I am I am an under shepherd. I want to call us all to Jesus's authority. Is to, for us to be a church family that embraces the word of God and practices it. That we set up our lives to receive Jesus's words and pr- and put them into practice. So I wanted to give you a tool to do this because essentially this is just a let's read our Bibles more kind of, kind of deal. But if we believe that the word of God is living and active, that it can pierce us, can shed light into our souls, then let's, let's make, set ourselves up to receive this. Receive Jesus' word and respond to it. And so I think in most of the bulletins, there was a little half-sheet handout uh, it's just a, a, a really simple, if you've been in church a while, it's going to seem probably too elementary for you. Uh, I would just say, well, give it a shot, because it's, it's a little bit more profound than it looks on front. But it's this little time with God sheet. The acronym is RDNA. And so what, what you see is developing a rhythm, a practice of putting ourselves at Jesus' feet. And it just would, would look like every day, five times a week, whatever. You set a goal that you think you can hit. If you're not regularly in the Word, maybe start with two or three times a week. And stop and reflect. Where is my heart? What is my heart loving? What am I longing for? What is occupying my mind? And just write that down. No judgment. You're like, uh, right now, I'm really stressed about my kids. Right now, I... I'm really mad at this person. Right now, I feel terrible about myself. Just whatever it is, just it, it, access your heart and say what you're feeling. And then the D stands for discover. We come to the word of God. We're not looking for a Band-Aid or a quick fix. We're looking for God himself. We're looking to spend time with God himself to receive the words of Jesus. So what, what do we see about the character of God, whether it's in the Gospels or any part of Scripture? What is God showing us about himself? What is he showing us about the true state of ourselves as humans? And then we nurture it. We're like, how does this quality of God speak to what I'm going through in my life? So maybe we're going through conflict in relationships, and we read about God being the God of peace. We ask, what what does this look like to, to live in the character of God as an agent of peace? And then we act. We sit quietly with this text we just read. We pray to God, what do you have for me in this? And we come up with some kind of action that we can do. Not to earn our way into heaven, not to make God love us more, but because we already have God's love, we can practice the way of grace, practice the way 
of Jesus. I know this is elementary. I know a lot of us are church folks. I've heard the <coughs> quiet time pep talk. And you can brush this off, brush this off as that. But we see Jesus' authority. We see his promise of the good life as we submit to it. And so all we can do is just make ourselves available to be transformed by it. To take his words and let them transform us by the power of the Spirit. I know all of us, our lives are slammed. We've got all kinds of things going on. And so this is not an add-on. I'm not saying, you, knew, you know, you need to add 15 minutes of doing our DNA every morning. Probably what it is, is it's saying no to something else. They're removing something so there's space to say yes to Jesus. Not adding Jesus on, saying no to something so there's space to say yes to Jesus. What will it look like for you? I know some of us wake up really ridiculously early and it's not, you know, the, the two hours in contemplative prayer might not be in the cards when you wake up at, what do you wake up at? Like two in the morning? Yeah, jeez. Um, but how, how can we put ourselves at Jesus' feet? What, what time of day will work? How can we take this seriously? This is a, not to make ourselves good. This is not like a percentage that you can tell your, your church members and say, Look, you know, I batted 500 this week or whatever with my quiet time. This is about making space to practice the way of Jesus. What do you have for me in your word, Father? What are you calling me to do in response to your word? So if this is the practice, or if this is the, the trellis, if you will, that the, a life of grace can grow on, this, this rhythm of making ourselves available to, to God's word, let's imagine what our church family could be like. And two things, that straight from the Sermon on the Mount, that have just been overwhelming themes of the Sermon on the Mount. What if we were a church family that wasn't anxious and self-aware? What if we were non-anxious, self-aware children of God our Father? What would that look like for our relationships in our church? What would that look like for our relationships with our neighbors? How would that affect our parenting? How would that affect our health? The anxiety's effect on our biological selves? Now, this is not a call to say, go get less anxious and more self-aware. This is a call to let God do this work in our hearts as we say yes to Jesus and seek to practice his way, to hear his word and practice it. Hear his word and practice it. If you would like a suggestion of where to start if you want to try to do the RDNA type of uh, system, uh, start in the book of John. It's just a really sweet uh, book of, of Jesus' teachings and actions. And ask that God would transform you, that it would be that, that 15, however long, many minutes uh, that, you, that you put aside, say, God, would you use this? Would you grow the way of grace in my heart? And would God grow us as a church family into a non-anxious, self-aware people that, that embrace grace every day? Let me pray.